Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. In this episode, I want to talk about what I believe Jesus lays out as the best way to live and look at the reason that God has these boundaries established in life that he invites us to live uh, between these rails, these guidelines that he set up for us. But before I start talking about that, I want to share a story from my own life of a time when I kind of was living without those boundaries and the chaos that resulted. So at the time, I I can't remember if I was 16 or 17, but I was together. I was with a group of uh, my friends and a bunch of 16, 17-year-old guys. You can imagine we came up with an idea And we decided we wanted to try to do this thing. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but we decided we wanted to do this thing. And it was honestly, looking back, and even in the moment, it was a bad idea. But what was unique was we actually realized that. And so we said, okay, well, we still want to do this, even though we objectively admit that it's not a good idea. But... It's something that we're going to need to get permission from someone's parent to do because we're going to get caught, we're going to get in trouble, and we need to have permission from somebody. So we actually sat down and had a conversation like, okay, which of the parents represented in this group are the most likely to give the okay to doing this idea? And so even though I didn't really agree, everybody else thought that our best chance to get this project greenlit was if I talked to my dad. We decided of all the parents, he was going to be the most likely to say this was okay. But I'm like, guys, he's not going to go for it. So I I had to pitch it to him in kind of a unique way, um, a deceptive way, I guess I would say. I knew if I told him all the details of what we were thinking we were going to do, there was no way he was going to say it was fine. And so I gave him just the vaguest detail. He couldn't piece together what exactly we were thinking. And I just said, hey, it's kind of this idea, kind of this idea, not enough that he knew what was going on. And I said, so what do you think? And I remember he looked at me and he said, Alan, you're you know, 16, 17, I don't remember exactly, but I trust your judgment and you can decide if it's okay or not okay. And I was like, oh, sweet. He didn't say no. So I go back to my buddies and I'm like, hey, he didn't really say it's exactly okay, but you know, whatever. He didn't say no. So we go and we do this idea. And a few weeks later, we get found out And I can remember my mom came and she confronted me. She said, Alan, you did this? What were you thinking? Why would you do that? And I said, oh, mom, yeah, totally. I agree with you. I mean, I I agree it's not a good idea. But I talked to dad and he said it was okay. Which isn't exactly what happened, right? You know the story. But it got me out of trouble and now turned her attention toward him. So she took off to go find him because now he was in trouble instead of me. And after about five minutes, I thought, well, I probably should be part of this conversation since I'm the one that 
caused all the problem here. So I went and I found my parents. They were up in their bedroom. And by the time I got there, they were debating with each other and they kind of ignored me. I was sort of just standing there like ready to say whatever I needed to say, but they were really focused on debating and arguing with each other. And I'm like, oh, this is working out better than I even could have planned. And after a little bit, I had some plans. So I said, hey, mom and dad, this is kind of awkward, I know, because I'm the reason that this whole argument's happening, but I actually have to go. And so I went down, I headed into the garage, and I don't remember why my car was in the shop or something like that. So I was driving my mom's car, and I went to back it out of the driveway, and still to this day, 16 years or however long later, I feel like I checked my blind spot, but man, I backed my mom's car right into my dad's car. But I didn't back it straight into it. Like I didn't broadside it. I didn't just T-bone it, whatever. I sort of sideswiped it. And so by the time I realized what was happening, I had sort of wedged these two cars together. And I had driven all the way up to the middle of the driver's side door on my dad's car with the back of my mom's car. And it was this this awful like as metal against metal. And I turned and I looked back and I was like, oh no. I thought, well, I, I can't leave these cars wedged together. So I put my mom's car in drive and pull forward and unwedge these cars, park, turn the car off, walk back through the garage, back upstairs to find mom and dad in the middle of still this thing that I caused. And I said, hey, uh, dad, I got some bad news for you. I said, I, I just hit your car. And I said, mom, I've got some bad news for you too. I was driving your car when I did it. And as you can probably imagine from your own experiences of being in moments like that, uh, that was a tough day for me and a tough next several months as I was paying off the insurance premiums and the raised insurance rates in the future and all those things. And I'm guessing that all of us know that feeling when we make one decision that if we're totally honest, we really know that we're not doing the best thing. We're not doing the right thing. We're not doing the smart thing. And then we watch from there that things just kind of keep spinning out of control. We know that when we're off track, we kind of live in chaos. And then we keep running into more and more issues because bad decisions snowball. And before we know it, we find ourselves going, man, why didn't I just do the wise thing in the first place? Well, a lot of times it's because we look at what we objectively agree is the wise thing and feel like it's not really fair that that's the expectation. It's not fair that we can't just do our thing and have a little fun or let loose or whatever it is and then we suffer the consequences. Well, I want to read a passage from Scripture. Uh, it's from John chapter 8. 
and the background here, Jesus is at one of the religious festivals that um, the, the nation of Israel, their holidays were built around celebrating what God had done in the history of the nation. And so they would gather together in Jerusalem and they would, uh, they would celebrate. They would remember what God had done. And these were kind of their national holidays. And so Jesus is at the temple and he's teaching. And in the midst of this, you know, the story of his life, there's constant tension between Jesus and the current religious leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the temple leaders and all that. Because what Jesus is talking about is this new interpretation that they haven't thought that that's the way that God moves. And so there's this tension, there's this buildup between what Jesus is coming to teach and the current existing structure of the religious world. And so this tension is mounting. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a, a national religious holiday. And in John chapter 8, verse 3, it says, as he was speaking, this is Jesus, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, before we go on and read the rest of what happens next, and maybe you're already familiar with the story and you know, but we need to understand what's going on here. So these religious leaders were trying to catch Jesus in a moment that they could point to and say, hey, people of Israel who are claiming that you want to follow after God, uh, if you want to follow this guy, Jesus, you need to know something about him. Um, we, we talked to him about the law of Moses and we confronted him about something, and here's the decision that he made. They were setting him up because there's really not a good answer to this predicament that they put him in because they're putting these two things at war against each other with this fake option kind of that they're giving him. They're saying, okay, Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery, which, by the way, uh, adultery is going to take at least two people to be involved, and they only caught the one person. So you can sort of tell from the beginning that this isn't really coming from a genuine place of, hey, something was going on here and we didn't feel like it was right and we wanted to bring about healing and restoration and change. We want to get back to the healthier way. That's not what's going on here. They're using this woman um, kind of as a pawn to make a point. Her life doesn't matter to them. They're just using her to kind of try to catch Jesus. And so they put him in this spot where they say, okay, the law of Moses says uh, that we need to stone this woman. So what do we do? And this kind of false choice that they're putting in front of Jesus here 
is option one to uh, uphold the law of Moses and say, yep, we need to stone this woman. She was caught in adultery. Well, the thing about that is a few things. Uh, That really wasn't practiced anymore by the time that they were trying to catch Jesus in this moment. This is something that had uh, stopped being a normal part of life in Israel because the people were saying, hey, that's too harsh, or hey, we want to be a little bit more lenient. We want to kind of people make mistakes and we don't want to punish somebody with death for making that mistake. So that was really the popular sentiment. That was how most people felt, and that was what was actually practiced. Now also, Israel is under Roman rule at this time, and it was sort of open to debate whether that would even be legal to execute somebody for religious law without going through the proper Roman channels because they were the rulers of the nation of Israel at that time. And so they're putting him in this spot where it's like, okay, Jesus, do you agree with Moses? Do you think that scripture is actually inspired by God? Do you think that what God spoke through Moses is still true? Or do you think that we should just kind of say, ah, well, you know, we don't need to do anything. We'll just let her go, send her on her way and say, hey, try not to do it again. So if he said that, then he's basically saying, okay, I don't agree with scripture. I don't agree that it's inspired by God. This is where they're trying to, they feel like they got him. But if he says, yes, we need to stone this woman, that's what the law of Moses teaches, and that's what we need to do. It's what God said, that's what we're going to do. They knew that he would be losing his reputation as what people who didn't like Jesus kind of used to slam him he had this reputation as of being a friend of sinners. He was someone that no matter your background, no matter where you were, no matter the bad decisions that you had made or were currently making, um, Jesus, he just welcomed you. And he would treat you like a person. He would talk to you like you mattered. And he had developed this reputation, like I said, of being a friend of sinners over time. And they knew that if Jesus came out now and said, no, I'm going to affirm the Old Testament, the law of Moses, this really strict punishment for someone being caught in adultery, then he was going to lose the following that he was gaining from people because they really appreciated his compassion and his grace and his mercy. And so they put him in this spot where he has two bad choices that no matter what he does, they're going to be able to turn people against him. They're going to be able to say either he disagrees with Moses, he's saying that God's word isn't inspired, or they can say, see, we knew that he wasn't this gracious, forgiving, merciful guy. He's all about killing someone that was caught in adultery. 
John chapter 8, verse 6, the story goes on. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now, I want to talk about this, what's going on right here for a second, because Jesus, while they're talking to him, he's down, he's bending over, and he's writing in the dust with his finger, which is a pretty strange detail that's included in this story. And it's not recorded what he wrote, so people have tried to figure out and try to read into, okay, what might he have been uh, writing? What, why was he writing in the sand? What was going on there? And there's a few different ideas that um, I think make some sense of this story and why Jesus would be bending down writing in the sand. I'm just going to talk about a few different of these things. The first one um, is that maybe he was bending down And he was writing out while he's telling them, okay, whoever of you has never sinned, go ahead and you throw the first stone and then we'll stone this woman. Um, Maybe he was writing in the dust the sins that were in the people's lives who were ready to stone this woman. And as he wrote word after word after word, more people realized, yeah, okay, I'm not perfect either, so I guess I don't get to be the person to pass judgment here. Or others think that maybe he was writing. Um, There's this idea in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament that the names of the wicked will be written in dust. And so there's this idea that maybe Jesus was using this moment to kind of confront them with their motives for why they were doing what they were doing in this moment. And he's writing their names down because he's saying, hey, I know that you're not coming at this because you really care about trying to have God's will happen in this situation. You're just trying to prove a point. You're using this woman as a pawn. And maybe he's just writing their names in the dust. The third idea that uh, is intriguing to me, this one is my personal favorite, I think mostly just because I think it's funny, um, is that he's just bending down and he's just kind of writing in the dust, almost just doodling because he's like, whatever, I want you to know I'm not paying attention to what you're saying because I don't really think it's that important. It's like it's like uh, Jesus was essentially... Uh, doing what today we would do is just kind of like looking down at his phone instead of paying attention to what the people around him are talking about and just communicating, hey, I don't really value this discussion. I don't really need to be a part of this because it's not a big deal what you guys are freaking out about. I know you're not really coming at this from the right place. And so he says, okay, whoever of you is without sin, you can go ahead and throw the first stone. And he bends down and he keeps writing in the dust. 
And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. And this story from Jesus' life is such a beautiful thing. He takes this moment, this gotcha moment, where the religious leaders thought they had him dead to rights, that he was either going to lose his reputation as a friend of sinners or he was going to lose his reputation as a teacher of the law because he was undermining Moses. And Jesus instead uses this moment to not only confront and remind these religious leaders that they were coming at it from the wrong point of view, but he also, in speaking with this woman, he offers, um, in a way, forgiveness, um, but in a way, kind of freedom. He says, didn't anyone condemn you? She says, no. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now Jesus, as he so often does, he balances this fine line just about perfectly or actually perfectly um, because he's not just fully saying, hey, you can do whatever you want and it's all cool, doesn't matter, yada, yada. He didn't do that. He said, I'm not condemning you. But then he says, go and sin no more. He does say, hey, as a result of this interaction with me, um, there are some things that need to change. And if this big group of people gathering together and confronting you, you didn't really maybe even need that to know that what you were doing was wrong. Um, but moving forward, go and sin no more. And when I read this passage, uh, what I'm reminded of is how easy it is um, to get wrong why God has these boundaries, these standards, these rules for living. Because we can often start to think like the religious leaders did. We can think that, okay, God's got all these rules and he's super strict about them. He's really mad. He's just waiting until we mess up so that he can get us. And most of us have spent a lot of our lives thinking that. That God's always waiting, always watching, and he's just hoping that we mess up hoping that we disobey so that he can condemn us and judge us and so that he can punish us and so he can say, ha, I knew that you were screwed up. And most of us have lived a lot or all of our lives thinking that. Thinking that God has these rules so that he can rub it in our face when we mess up, when we fall short when we live outside of the boundaries that he's established for us. 
But what we find here in Jesus is that the reason that God has these rules for our lives, these expectations, why he invites us to live a life that's holy and blameless and pure is not because he wants to get us when we don't, but it's because he knows that it's the best way to live. You know, all through scripture, um, we have this idea and Jesus talks about it explicitly. He says um, that our God is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children. And I, I know that for some of us, um, the idea of a father, the first thing we think of is not good um, because our experience with our earthly father has been so damaging. Uh, it's been so filled with abuse or disappointment or neglect or maybe we never even met our father in the first place. And so when we try to picture that our heavenly father is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children, we're like, I, I don't really have a frame of reference for that. But what we see as Jesus lives out his life day after day after day, what we see recorded all through scripture is Jesus reflecting who God is as he lives out his life here on earth. And what we see time and time and time again is that Jesus wasn't waiting for people to mess up so that he could get them. He wasn't waiting for people to make mistakes so that he could prove a point about how broken and messed up and, and beyond any kind of help they are. Jesus knew that these boundaries, these rules, these expectations that God has given us, the reason they exist is because God is our good father and he wants us to live life the best way it can be lived. And so I, the challenge, I think, from this passage is if we've spent life or we've spent a portion of life or we're currently in a season of life right now where we're thinking, yeah, I know that God's just waiting to get me. He's waiting, he's watching everything to see when I mess up so that he can smite me from heaven or whatever it is that we're thinking in our heads. Remember that our Father in heaven is a good Father. And the way that we see Jesus live out these standards and these laws and these rules that God invites us into uh, Jesus' perspective is not cool. We caught somebody messing up. Time to punish him. He's saying, "Hey, we caught somebody messing up, and I'm going to offer instead of judgment and punishment and disappointment, I'm going to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing." And I think. 
that the same words that Jesus said to this woman caught in adultery are the same words that Jesus would offer wherever we're at in life. Go and sin no more. It's a high calling. It's a tough thing that he's inviting us into. But when we understand the spirit behind it, when we know that he's not out to catch us doing something we're not supposed to do, when he's offering a better way to live, we understand on a whole new level where that's coming from, why God cares so much about how we live. It's because he knows that just like the story I opened this episode with, you know, about when things are out of control, they just keep spiraling. If there's no boundaries, there's no guidelines, there's no standards, um, things get pretty crazy pretty fast. And God has laid out these rules in our lives, which we just naturally just resist because we don't like to be told what to do. But when we understand that where he's coming from is he's saying, hey, there's a better way to live than kind of just doing your own thing, doing whatever feels right or good in the moment. And it's living according to these standards and boundaries that I'm inviting you into because it's the best way to live.